So reading Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. And uh, the title in the NIV, it's one that anybody who's done any work in a church will know. Uh, the workers are few. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Let's just pray as Andy comes up. Lord, thank you for your word and, and, and thank you for the workers you do give us. Thank you for the workers you do give us in this church. And I just pray for Andy now as he comes up to share your word that uh, uh, you will inspire him and inspire our listening as well, Lord, and bring your, uh, your word and the true meaning into our lives. Amen. Andy. Thank you, Phil. Good morning. Uh, it is great to be back. Uh, lots of faces I recognise, or at least partially recognise, behind the masks, hopefully not for too much longer. Uh, it is a joy to be here. Uh, over all my years here, our partnership down at the road at All Saints Laleham with uh, you here at Staines has just been uh, a joy and an encouragement. And uh, the uh, Passion for Life missions, which we've held uh, every couple of years or so, across those years, uh, again, has been just one of the more really fruitful and encouraging things that we've been able to do together. So thank you for partnering with us uh, in this. Well, we're going to be looking at uh, page 974. You might like to keep that open in front of you. Uh, last week, I went to see Tottenham Hotspur play. Uh, I've been going for, I hope that doesn't switch too many of you off straight away. Uh, I've been going for, for pretty much 50 years. I know I don't look old enough, but... Uh, um, and, and in that time, uh, the stadium has been completely transformed. It's now one of the finest stadiums in the world. But also in that time, one thing has not changed, and that is the transport links. Uh, they are still pretty much as awful as they ever were. It's not an easy place to get to. And it means every time I've ever been, there's always been that decision. Should I leave early to beat the crowds at the White Hart Lane Stadium? And across the years, most of the time I have, because uh, for many years I used to go with my dad, and uh, he was definitely someone who liked to beat the crowds. Then uh, a little more recently, I've sometimes been with my kids, and when they're young, again, I think, oh, I really want to beat the crowds. Anyway, this time... I went with uh, one of my children, and uh, he's a lot uh, quicker than I am. And it was fine. We could stay to the end, watch Harry Kane's 88th-minute goal, so it was well worth it. Which did mean that by the time we got to White Hart Lane Station, we were in a massive crowd crammed there onto, uh, onto the platform. And uh, crowds in that situation, well, there's this kind of sense of frustration, slight anxiety. Am I going to be able to get onto the train? We'll have to wait for the next one. Will I be back late? Of course, in these COVID days, there's a whole extra level of anxiety that we have about crowds. I was standing there thinking, when was the last time I was in a crowd uh, like this? I'm not sure I have been. Well, I don't know what your reaction to a crowd is, perhaps when you were last in a big crowd. But in our passage this morning, we see a very different attitude towards crowds. Rather than being frustrated or impatient, and I was getting a bit, Jesus, we're going to see, is compassionate. 
rather than trying to avoid them, perhaps to get away early, Jesus actually sends his disciples to them in mission. And uh, this is why I think it's a great passage to uh, have a look at as part of our short series as we prepare for our Passion for Life mission. This week of events over the February half term, where we want to make a special effort to be telling people in a variety of contexts, variety of ways, about the good news of Jesus Christ. And I hope this morning that as we see what it was that motivated Jesus to send out people on mission, that that is going to motivate us too and help us to make the most of the opportunities as well as encourage us uh, in that. Because I don't know what your reaction is uh, when you hear about a week of mission. Uh, it may be that, uh, that our, our first reaction is one of excitement and expectation. But if you're like me, there are at least some other uh, reactions and emotions going on as well. Uh, we might well feel a bit inadequate. You know, I'm not sure I've got the confidence to invite someone to an event. And oh my goodness, I'd really feel quite anxious if I had to talk about my faith. I'm not sure I could do it very well. I'd be worried I might say the wrong thing, put people off. We might feel a little bit disillusioned. Perhaps you've been here for a while and uh, you think, well, we, we've had missions before. Perhaps you've asked people before. Some have said yes, come to an event perhaps, but you haven't seen many people becoming Christians. Is it really worth the effort? We're a bit disillusioned. And if we're really honest, there might be a bit of indifference as well. Yes, you know, it's wonderful being a Christian. We're aware of some of the blessings. But as we look around at the people we know, they don't really seem to be missing out too much, at least in this life. And it's just kind of hard to keep in mind that they might be facing an eternity without Jesus. And so it doesn't seem that urgent or important. We've become a bit indifferent. Well, in our passage this morning, I think we're going to see Jesus give at least two powerful motivations for mission why we might want to make the most of our passion for life. There's lots else in the passage, for example, about prayer. We're not going to look at that, but we're going to look at two motivations, the compassion for the lost and encouragement in the Lord. So first off, compassion for the lost. So verse 36 of chapter 9, we see how Jesus reacts to the crowds. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus has compassion. It's a powerful word. Literally, it means a gut reaction. It means to be deeply moved with love and concern. It's the word that uh, Jesus uses of the father's feeling towards his destitute son in the parable of the prodigal son. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion for him in all his need he ran to his son threw his arms around him and kissed him that's how Jesus views these crowds actually it's the regular reaction as we read through the gospels of Jesus to people who are in need but what is the need that this crowd has a little later in chapter 15 Jesus has compassion on another crowd and they've got a very practical need they are close to collapse because they haven't eaten much. 
Chapter 15, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. And Jesus responds by feeding those 4,000. But in our passage, the crowd are not physically hungry. That's not their need. It's not a physical one. It is a spiritual need. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus is deeply moved towards these people because he sees the depth of their need. They're like sheep without a shepherd. You may know that word shepherd. Uh, it's got a, a rich Old Testament background and refers particularly to the leaders of Israel and ultimately to God himself and the divine king, the Messiah, that he's going to send, Jesus. So Jesus is aware that they are lacking a leader who will be able to spiritually rescue them, protect them, guide them, and provide for them. That's their need. So what is Jesus' response to the need? Well, it's to tell people that just the leader they need is here. The king has come. And he demonstrates this with these amazing miracles of restoration. In verse 35, we see that Jesus has been going through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And you may know in John chapter 10, Jesus famously refers to himself as the good shepherd, the shepherd that harassed and helpless sheep need. John chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He will provide what they need spiritually through his death on the cross. But it wasn't simply that this particular crowd was like sheep without a shepherd who need to come to, to King Jesus, the good shepherd. This is true of the whole of Israel. So in the following chapter, Jesus sends out the 12 apostles to take this message wider than Jesus is able to on his own. So in chapter 10, verse 6, go to, how does he characterize everyone they're going to meet? The lost sheep of Israel. But it's a bigger problem than this. It's not just that crowd. It's not just a Jewish problem. Their lack of knowledge about King Jesus Actually, it's a universal problem. Again, if we were to flip over to John chapter 10, Jesus extends this metaphor beyond Israel to the whole world. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen, that aren't a part of Israel. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. So Jesus is looking uh, into the future uh, beyond Pentecost to the mission beyond the boundaries of Israel. And Jesus recognizes that every human being is like a sheep without a shepherd. It's a picture of the entire non-Christian world. So the, probably the majority in our country, still many billions around the world. And what is it like to be a sheep without a shepherd? Why is this such a problem? Well, Jesus characterizes it, doesn't he, in our passage, verse 36, 
When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They're harassed and helpless. Okay, these are powerful, almost sort of shocking words. Literally, the first one means to, to skin alive, to flay. The second is uh, literally to throw down. It's a picture, actually, you might have come across uh, if you've been walking in the countryside. Uh, we have a dog uh, called Hetty, and uh, most days off, uh, Elspeth, my wife, and I, will you go out into the countryside for, uh, for a longer walk? And quite often, uh, especially as we get uh, into spring, you will find a little sign at the entrance to a field. It says, please keep your dog on a lead. I mean, put the dog on the lead. And sometimes it's, it's accompanied by a rather gruesome photo or picture. Have you seen one of these? Of a sheep that's been attacked. And it is lying on the ground. And usually you kind of, it's, its throat has been ripped. <sighs> Sheep are really vulnerable, and without protection, they can be worried, attacked, even killed. And this is the picture Jesus wants us to have in mind. This is the state, Jesus says, that men and women are in without the protection of the good shepherd. Now, of course, as we look around... As we think of non-Christians, we know they may not seem to fit this description. They don't necessarily look particularly harassed and helpless. Many of them might well look comfortable, confident, successful. But Jesus tells us that's not their real situation if we looked under the surface as he does. Actually, they may be like sheep who are grazing contentedly in their field, but are unaware of the terrible danger that they're in. Jesus goes on in the following chapter, as he prepares the 12 for their particular mission, he says starkly that if people reject his message, I tell you, he says, verse 15, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah, two, two cities that were destroyed in God's righteous anger, it will be more bearable for them on the day of judgment than for that town. There is judgment that is coming. And that judgment will involve facing the one who will destroy both soul and body in hell. So they may look content, but there is a terrible danger that they face without the good shepherd. I think Jesus though, is also reminding us that at the present state of so many non-Christians, like sheep in a field, who are aware of their vulnerability and the dangers that there are around, but they haven't any idea where to turn for help or safety. And I think we, we're perhaps aware of this. Perhaps, I, don't, I don't know, perhaps some of you, are, you, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian this morning, and you're aware of something of this in your own life, that again, we might look confident and comfortable and successful on the outside, but actually many people are very aware of a deep need in their lives, even if perhaps they can't fully identify or articulate it. But longing for forgiveness for past mistakes, freedom from anxiety that weighs us down, or 
a change in the destructive patterns of behavior that seem to control us, or just longing for love and acceptance, or a hope for the future in the face of death. We need to see people with the eyes of Jesus. To see our family and our friends and our colleagues and our neighbors. To see them like vulnerable, sometimes frightened sheep who are in desperate need of the Good Shepherd. And it's as we begin to see people in their need, so I think we begin to share more of the compassion of Jesus and long for them to meet the Good Shepherd. The first motivation, the compassion for the lost. I want to identify a second one, encouragement in the Lord. I think there's a second motivation here as well as compassion. There's encouragement as Jesus changes the farming metaphor from livestock to crops. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. There is a harvest of lives to be reaped, and it's a plentiful harvest. Now again, it's possible that we might wonder, was that a feature of first century Israel, but not necessarily 21st century Staines or Laleham or Ashford. So, okay, the harvest was plentiful then, but realistically, it just isn't now. It was worth going on mission then because there'd be lots of positive responses, but our experience tells us it's different now. Well, I think it does extend beyond first century Israel. I think this can give us confidence, even in 21st century Staines or Laleham. Why? Well, first of all, Jesus applies it further. He uses very similar words in John chapter 4, where Jesus is outside of Israel. He's in Samaria, and he says there's a ripe harvest here as well. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest it's a little phrase Jesus adds then to our passage that I think is quite striking. He says to the disciples, open your eyes. The old King James had, lift up your eyes. I think the problem is the disciples just aren't expecting any harvest from the Samaritans, who centuries ago had rejected the God of the Bible. So they're kind of walking around with their heads down. They're resigned. They're downcast. But Jesus said, no, lift up your eyes. There is a hope. There's a harvest even amongst the Samaritans. And lo and behold, there is a conversion. Initially, just a one person, one woman. But through that, she goes and tells lots of other people. And then we read in John 4:39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him. Because of the woman's testimony, he told me everything I ever did. And I think we can also be, sort of have our eyes closed, be blind to the spiritual state of others. Their, their readiness to respond to Jesus. 
Jesus is telling his disciples, telling us, I think, be alert to the possibilities of a harvest, even in the most unlikely of circumstances. And then we also see in the New Testament how this same imagery is applied not just to Israel by Jesus in our passage, not just in Samaria, but actually beyond into places very like Staines and Laleham, to the Gentile world. Here's what Paul says at the beginning of Romans, Romans 1.13. He says, I planned many times to come to you in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I've had among the other Gentiles. I think we're to work on the assumption that there are men and women, boys and girls, in our day, in our area, who are ready to become believers. There is a harvest that the Lord of the harvest wants to gather in. But let me note two surprises, or at least surprises to me, about this harvest. Perhaps two qualifications that may help us avoid possible misunderstandings and perhaps, I think, uh, a sense of unrealism and disillusionment. And the first is this. Fruitful evangelism, fruitful, a fruitful harvest, doesn't mean painless evangelism. Fruitful evangelism doesn't mean painless evangelism. If there is this plentiful harvest, we might think or assume that the task of sharing the good news is going to be an easy one. People are just ready to respond. Well, as we read on into chapter 10, Jesus also goes on to give a promise of persecution and suffering for all of those who are involved in his work. Here's what he says in chapter 10, verse 22. You will be hated by everyone because of me. That will include members uh, of uh, our own families, he says. In fact, he warns them that things can get very tough indeed. Be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. And some may even have to pay the ultimate price. Verse 28, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. Well, I'm hoping for my own sake, and Nick, your pastor, that uh, your elders, that they're not going to be arrested or beaten over the next uh, few weeks, perhaps even murdered as part of Passion for Life. But boy, Jesus is warning us, this is a serious business, and fruitful evangelism does not mean painless evangelism. Just a second qualification, or, or surprise to me, Fruitful evangelism does not necessarily mean large numbers of conversions. Now, I'm a little hesitant to mention this because I think Jesus' aim is to encourage us, if you like, to lift up our eyes, that we should expect conversions, that some people are ready to respond, to give us confidence, motivate us. But I think there is a danger if we think that it means everyone is ready to respond, or even a, a large number. I think we can perhaps be misled if we've watched Clarkson's Farm. Well, or we've ever seen a combine harvester. We think, right, there's, there's a field ready for harvest, and all you have to do is just drive the combine harvester, and every bit of, of, of kind of wheat or corn or whatever it is, is gathered in. It, it's the whole lot. And even if you miss a bit out, you can just go back and get it quickly. And we'd go, but in no way does that fit what I think any of us have ever seen happening. We have never seen everyone 
responding, being harvested like that. And actually, I think that's what we fit see in the New Testament as well. So in the mission that follows our passage in chapter 10, the 12 apostles, they go out, and actually there seem to be relatively few converts. There are converts, but there seem to be relatively few. So that by the time we get to Jesus' death, well, the number of believers seems to be down to about 120. And that is after three years of mission with the most wonderful preaching ever heard and the most amazing miracles ever seen. If we turned over to John chapter 4, where Jesus spoke of a harvest being ripe, what do we see? Well, we see one woman being converted and then we see many in a town or village coming to faith. But we don't hear of the whole Samaritan nation. We don't know. 25 years later, when Paul is writing to the Romans about the harvest he's looking forward to amongst them and that he's had amongst the other Gentiles, yes, he's founded churches in every city he's visited. There have been some harvests, some believers, but they are a tiny minority of the population. Now, through history and through Bible times as well, there are moments of particularly bountiful harvest, times of revival. For example, on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, 41, about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Occasionally, God reaps a harvest on that scale, although even then, it was a small minority of the total population. But that seems to be an exception rather than the rule. But just because we haven't seen thousands converted in a day doesn't mean that Jesus' words here are neither true nor for our encouragement. That there is a harvest waiting in our day in this place, here and now amongst us as we invite and speak. So Jesus uh, is saying, yes, there will be some, perhaps many, who are indifferent. Some may even be hostile. Jesus actually has promised us that. But there will be men and women, boys and girls, who are ready to respond, who are ready to be reaped, who are ready to come to the Good Shepherd. So brothers and sisters, it is wonderful to be partnering with you in mission. And where perhaps, especially if we've been Christians for quite a long time, we've perhaps grown a little bit tired or discouraged about the chances of any real conversions amongst the people we know, perhaps there are people we've invited a number of times. Let's share the motivations of Jesus this morning, his compassion, is compassion for the lost. They are harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And we have an opportunity to invite them to come and meet the good shepherd. And the encouragement of his vision that there is a harvest that he wants to reap, a harvest that is plentiful. Let me close by reading from one commentator. People try to look happy and successful, 
But in reality, we are all suffering from our sins and want to hear the good news of forgiveness. We feel empty and meaningless and want to find a real purpose for life. We are tired of living a petty life and want to pursue greatness. We feel weary and tired and seek true rest and peace for our souls. Who can give all these things? Politicians, entertainers, Google? No, only Jesus can. Only Jesus died for our sins. Only Jesus rose from the dead. Only Jesus opens the way to the kingdom of God for us. Only Jesus can give us the Holy Spirit who has the power to transform us and enable us to bear good fruit. People need Jesus. When we know this and boldly proclaim Jesus Christ, there will be a harvest. A spiritual awakening will happen. Shall we pray as we sit? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us more of the compassionate heart of Jesus towards the lost. That we would see people more clearly with his eyes, particularly in their need, harassed and helpless without him. And would you also please encourage us Encourage us that there will be some you are going to bring into your harvest. So please encourage us that even if we do face indifference or perhaps hostility, to be inviting, to be sharing where you open a door of our knowledge of your kindness to us in Jesus. And would you be pleased to use the event through Passion for Life to bring many sheep into the security of a flock guarded, provided for now and for eternity by the Good Shepherd, by the Lord Jesus himself. How we long for this. And ask that you would use us as churches, use us as individuals, that many might be saved. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.